Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's 7 a.m. in Beijing, 5 p.m. in Mexico City, and 6 p.m. here in New York. I'm Julia Chatterley, and wherever you are in the world, this is your first move. I will welcome once again to First Move, and here's your need to know. Desperation for food leads to tragedy in Gaza. The territory's health ministry says more than 100 people died in the chaos after Israeli forces opened fire on a crowd. The race for the White House collides in Texas. President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump both visit border towns to highlight the immigration crisis. And CNN on the front lines as Ukrainian forces confront advancing Russian troops. All that and more coming up. But first, tragedy and conflicting accounts. More than 100 people lost their lives and more than 700 people were injured after Israeli troops opened fire at a food site in Gaza City. That, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza. Now, CNN is unable to independently confirm those figures. The Israeli military has also given a different account of the circumstances, saying that there were two separate incidents involving aid trucks just hundreds of meters away from one another. An Israeli official told CNN troops did use live fire on the people near an aid truck after the soldiers felt threatened by the crowd. An IDF spokesperson said this at a press conference several hours ago. No IDF strike was conducted towards the the aid convoy. On the contrary, the IDF was there conducting a humanitarian operation to secure the humanitarian corridor and allow the aid convoy to reach its designated distribution point. And Jeremy Diamond joins us now. Jeremy, people there are hungry, they're desperate, and the food truck deliveries are scarce. I think those are indisputable facts at this moment, but there is confusion over what happened. What information have you managed to gather in the ensuing hours? Yeah, that's right, Julia. Conflicting accounts over exactly the exact sequence of events here. The Israeli military saying that it fired on a group of Palestinians, but only after this stampede began to happen. Meanwhile, eyewitnesses on the ground, including a local journalist who I spoke with who was at the scene, saying that it was the Israeli gunfire that prompted that stampede and that prompted these trucks to flee in panic and run over dozens of individuals. But the bottom line here is that this incident is shining a spotlight on the dire humanitarian situation, including the starvation in northern Gaza. Around four in the morning, thousands of Palestinians are already camped out by the coastal road in western Gaza City. Humanitarian aid trucks are reportedly en route, a rarity in northern Gaza, where hundreds of thousands are now on the brink of famine. 
As the convoy passes an Israeli military checkpoint and enters Gaza City, hundreds desperate for food swarm the trucks, as seen in this drone video released by the Israeli military. Many climb onto the trucks, grabbing what they can, when suddenly... The Israeli military opens fire, killing and wounding about 20 people in the crowd, according to local journalist Khader al-Zanun, who was on the scene. Pandemonium ensues. As people run away, eyewitnesses say the truck drivers speed off, killing dozens more people. The Palestinian Ministry of Health says at least 104 people were killed altogether and more than 700 injured. CNN is unable to independently confirm those numbers. The Israeli military acknowledges its troops shot people near the convoy, but says the gunfire was unrelated and came after people were already killed in a stampede. In a second event, in a short distance away, we also had a, a group of people that approached the military forces in a war zone. Um, the forces opened fire in the air to distance them, warning fire, in order to get people out of harm's way. Unfortunately, they proceeded to advance and indeed they're a perceived threat, um, and the forces open fire. Of course, I will say we're continuing to investigate, continuing to inquire in our after-actions activities. That account contradicted by eyewitnesses, who say Israeli gunfire triggered the mass panic. Our children die of hunger. They went to get a bag of flour in order to feed their children. Some were run over, others were shot, so they send us the aid, so that the Israelis can keep shooting at our children. This is wrong. This is not right. This is not right. The latest victims killed on a day when the death toll in Gaza surpassed 30,000, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health, a majority of whom are women and children. More may soon die of starvation, as the World Food Program warns that more than half a million Gazans are on the brink of famine. We are talking about a man-made a famine, because in, in, we, we have a kind of a total blockage for the people who are living in the north. There is not even enough of animal food, animal fodder, for people to eat or to do bread with animal fodder. That desperation brought Tamar Atta al-Shimbari to that coastal road early Thursday morning. He went to get a bit of bread, a bag of flour for his family, displaced at the schools in Jabalia camp. Now he lies dead, killed while trying to survive. And Julia, the critical backdrop to all of this is those uh, ne negotiations to try and secure a temporary ceasefire in Gaza. This incident certainly highlighting the need for that ceasefire in order to get much needed humanitarian aid into Gaza. But it is also highlighting the potential difficulties and it could make these negotiations more complicated. President Biden, for his part, certainly thinks so, saying that he is certain that it will complicate those negotiations. Julia. Certainly. Jeremy Diamond, thank you so much for that report there. And as Jeremy was saying, President Joe Biden says this tragedy does add urgency for a ceasefire deal, but will also complicate ongoing negotiations. A United Nations Security Council meeting about the incident got underway just a short while ago, too. Oren Lieberman joins us now. Oren, good to have you with us. As I mentioned, Biden said earlier this week that he was hoping for a deal as soon as Monday, potentially. That now seems more remote as a result of the violence that we saw earlier. The president also, I believe, spoke with leaders of both Egypt and Qatar, two of the main mediators in these negotiations. Do we have any sense of where 
Those talks now stand. So when President Joe Biden had said he was hoping there might be a ceasefire and a chance for a hostage release on Monday, even that, according to those involved in, in the negotiations, Hamas and Israel, uh, was a bit optimistic. And now it seems even much more so. Biden backed off that Monday assessment and said, look, he is still optimistic. Hope springs eternal. He told uh, our colleague, White House correspondent Arlette Sines, but he wouldn't put a specific date on it and say when there might be uh, a ceasefire in place, a hostage release in place, a chance for, uh, a, a chance for more aid to come in. Uh, and get to the people of Gaza who so desperately need it here. But that effort is ongoing, uh, that effort to try to bring these sides to some sort of agreement, at least a temporary ceasefire that might give a window for a more lasting effort here. The question, of course, where does that stand? Biden was on the phone, as you pointed out, with the leaders of Egypt and Qatar. Meanwhile, the U.S. calling for an investigation. Uh, the White House said they were in touch with their Israeli counterparts and have called for an investigation into the incident here. The White House wouldn't get into what they see as having happened here. They wouldn't say who they find more credible on an explanation or, or whether they find the numbers themselves credible here, only calling it a serious situation. The State Department said they are calling for an investigation and, and uh, from, from their uh, conversations with Israeli counterparts, they understand that investigation is underway. They say that th there are far too many innocent Palestinians who have been killed already. The White House said one innocent Palestinian killed is already too many, and yet the numbers keep rising here. So that is of concern. Uh, of course, the White House here being somewhat tempered, but not going as far as to say, this is the date now where we expect a ceasefire will be in place, only that those efforts are ongoing and that they have been complicated and made more difficult by the horrible situation that we just saw unfold here. Certainly, and everybody waiting uh, the results of that investigation as well. Oren, good to have you. Thank you there, Oren Lieberman. Now, in the United States, immigration, border security, a pivotal issue with voters ahead of the U.S. elections in November. President Joe Biden and his predecessor are competing for airtime by visiting the border with Mexico. It was a split-screen moment, as we call it. You can see it there, with Republican frontrunner Donald Trump visiting Eagle Pass, while Joe Biden was nearly 500 kilometers away in Brownsville. The president had supported a bipartisan border security package, but some Senate Republicans aligned with Donald Trump opposed it. I understand my predecessor's in Eagle Pass today. So here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Instead of playing politics with this issue, instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me, or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. You know and I know it's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? But this is a Joe Biden invasion. This is a Biden invasion over the past three years. I call him Crooked Joe because he's crooked. He's a terrible president, the worst president our country's ever had, uh, probably the most incompetent president we've ever had. But it's uh, allowing thousands and thousands of people to come in from China, Iran, Yemen, the Congo, Syria, and a lot of other nations. 
Let's get to MJ Lee now at the White House. MJ, let's be clear, this has been a problem years in the making and has been building, and it's a huge problem for President Biden. I think our latest polling says just 30 percent of Americans approve of President Biden's handling of the crisis on the border. Did they achieve what they intended to do, which was, I think, today to say, look, we tried and failed to pass something to tackle this, and it's not the Democrats' fault? Yeah, I mean, as you pointed out, it started with that really remarkable uh, split screen moment with both President Biden and the former President Donald Trump making this visit down to the border on the same day. And if you listen to their remarks, what they were essentially trying to do was one up each other and make the case to the public that uh, each of them was better when it came to the issue of border security. And in terms of President Biden and what he said publicly in his remarks, there was a lot of finger pointing at Republicans uh, reminding folks that there had been uh, a deal that was negotiated on Capitol Hill that Republicans uh, essentially ended up rejecting in part because of calls by Donald Trump to do so. Uh, and the uh, probably the most uh, remarkable part of the speech from President Biden was the piece you just played where he directly went after Donald Trump and essentially said, join me, you know, join me in calling on Congress to take action. Let's not play politics with the border issue. We can work together to get something done on border policies on, and on border uh, funding. And I think what the entire day uh, really uh, capt uh, captured in terms of President Biden and the politics here is how much that issue has changed for Democrats in a matter of weeks. You know, it's no uh, secret that this is an issue that for Democrats uh, has been sort of sensitive and a difficult one for them to uh, navigate around, particularly because they had received so much criticism uh, from Republicans on this issue. You know, they have typically tended to uh, do the finger pointing at Democrats and say, uh, look at the situation on the border. It's uh, completely out of control and, uh, you know, is out of control because of Democrats uh, not having strong enough policies uh, aimed at the border. And now we have a situation where President Biden, who had uh, long been sort of reticent to even travel down to the border, actually making that trip and being able to say, look, it is because of Republicans and their inaction that we don't have uh, the extra funds that we need. You know, he met with Border Patrol agents and local law enforcement who clearly told him uh, we're running out of resources. We would really be uh, helped a lot if we had more money and more technology and access to the different things that could help us uh, make sure that the border is kept safe. So uh, both the split screen moment and also the fact that President Biden directly called out former President Trump, I think all just made for a really remarkable day uh, on an issue that we can guarantee is going to continue being uh, a central issue as we head into the 2024 general election season. And clearly, uh, President Biden and former President Trump, they are just going to continue hammering at this issue and try to claim that they are the candidate uh, that is better when it comes to this important issue. Certainly. But it certainly uh, the deal failure helped to help them change the narrative somewhat. And you certainly saw that today mm -hmm. from um, from the Biden administration. MJ Lee, thank you so much for that. OK, let's bring in Kristen Holmes now, who's been following Donald Trump in Eagle Pass, Texas. Kristen, good to have you with us. The former president, I think, knows that this is a subject where he can hit Biden where it hurts. I, I mentioned the poll readings of America's voting, American voters' views on how the 
um, the Biden administration has handled this. And it's pretty dire, quite frankly. And the former president lost no time in tying the flows of immigrants across the border to crime rates around the country. Yeah, and this is really a tactic that he's been using since 2015 when he launched his first presidential bids, when he said that Mexico was sending over drug dealers and rapists. This rhetoric has not changed and it hasn't even escalated. We're just noticing it more and more now. Now, I do want to mention Donald Trump linked violent crime to the migrants coming over the border. And there have been a number of high profile cases in recent weeks. However, statistically speaking, when you look at violent crime rates, they are not all committed by migrants. Actually, that is such a small percentage compared to how many violent crimes are actually committed. But one thing Donald Trump is good at is messaging. And what he's clearly doing here is picking out this, these cases and playing into people's fears like he has done in the past when it comes to immigration. Immigration is one of the key issues that brought him into the White House in 2016. And what he is hoping is that it's going to bring him into the White House again in 2024. You mentioned that polling about Biden's approval rating when it comes to immigration. Well, the other part of that is that Gallup recently had a poll that showed that immigration is the top issue for voters. So it's not just bad that voters don't think Biden's handling it well. It's bad that most voters care about it the most and they don't think that Biden is handling it well. And this is something that the former president is going to continue to seize on. Now, of course, you heard Joe Biden talking about how Donald Trump essentially tanked that bipartisan Senate border bill. That is accurate. Donald Trump has defended those actions, saying it wasn't political. It was just a bad deal, saying that Biden himself can do executive actions that would help fix some of the things on the border. But he has chosen not to go that route. Donald Trump is a master at spinning a narrative, and yet he is the one who tanked this bipartisan Senate bill that shouldn't be missed or glossed over in any way. He was saying both publicly and privately to Republican senators that they shouldn't get behind him. We saw Republican senators, even some of them who said that they had supported the bill, slowly back away from that. So he is responsible in that sense. But voters still view him as stronger when it comes to immigration, stronger when it comes to the border. And he is going to continue to play that up. And he's going to continue to play up this idea that migrants coming over the border equals violent crime in America with the hopes that that fear stoking, that fear mongering will help bring people to the ballot box in November. Yeah, and it certainly um, amps up the pressure to come up with some kind of better solution or a better deal if that's what you think you can get. And this wasn't good enough. For now, Kristen Holmes, thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead, your up-to-the-minute weather forecast as always. Plus, the global stock rally roars into overdrive with tech stocks on Wall Street hitting a fresh new milestone. We've got the details next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to First Move and a good Friday morning and a very happy March 1st if you're just waking up with us in Asia. In today's Money Move, U.S. stocks wrapping up February trade with a leap year leap after key inflation data came in as expected. The Nasdaq hitting its first record high, in fact, too, in more than two years. The S&P 500 also now sitting at records. Stocks in the news today include WW International. That's the parent company of Weight Watchers, shedding some 18% of its weight and falling to record lows during the session. All this after Oprah Winfrey announced she's stepping down from the company's board of directors. Oprah revealed earlier that she is taking one of the weight loss drugs that poses an existential threat to the company. Weight Watchers shares have fallen more than 65% year to date as the weight loss drug phenomenon accelerates. Wow, look at that share price. And in Asia, a last day of February, hooray for Chinese stocks. The Shanghai Composite finishing the month up 8%, and it is once again in positive territory for the year. March is truly about to come in like a lion, forget the lamb, on Wall Street after the Nasdaq's first records since 2021. But tech's new triumph is just a small part of the global rally for stocks that's seen the Japanese Nikkei hit records for the first time in decades. Taiwan, that's fairly tech-heavy, of course, also hitting all-time highs in February, as has India's Nifty 50. Nifty, indeed. The brand-new edition of The Economist asking the question on its cover, how high can markets go? Who better to ask that question than our very own Richard Quest, who joins us now? Richard, I'm just looking at the list of these. Australia, the United Kingdom, Denmark, these are not bastions of tech prowess. <laughs> What's going on in the world? Much as they'd like to be, I'm sure. Ah, well, I'm not sure. I mean, <clears throat> look, that, that how high can they go mm. depends on what your view is on interest rates and the economies. And this idea of soft landings or no landings, how much inflation will the Fed tolerate? And the numbers that you're just looking at on the screen now, I think, Julia, are basically the market saying we do not think that the Fed, the ECB, the EOB is going to crush inflation. We think that they're going to allow this sort of number and therefore will continue to cut. Yeah, I think there was a, a huge fear factor. And actually yeah. what we've seen over the last year is that um, economies overall have been incredibly resilient and the stock markets reflect that. But we can argue it very different ways. Yes. The value of the top 10 percent of American firms as a proportion of the whole market, Richard, has not been as high since the crash that caused the Depression in the 1930s. Wowzers. One could call this frothy if one chose to. No, no. No? Yeah, yeah, no. You're, you're, you're exactly the sort of person who spends most of the time telling me that the sky's falling in. The glass and then the, full. And then the first time we get a decent sort of market rally, oh, no, it won't last. Oh, no, <laughs> it'll all be over before Easter. 
I mean, I don't doubt that there are gains to be taken off the table by now. You can't have this sort of run up that we've had since the beginning of the year. So short term profit taking. Gosh, I love that phrase. Talk about talk about when you don't know what's happened. Short term profit taking is always the best one to fall back on. But the reality is, let me ask you a question then, Mom, if I Uh oh, give me a reason Besides the inflationary issues at the moment and the war and the oil and the blah, blah, blah. But give me a reason why markets should falter. Well, do you know, I actually think you've struck gold there in what you're talking about. I think what we've seen is a 30 percent increase on predictions for what growth was going to be last year. Better than expected. The what fourth quickest, no, the quickest rate hike cycle in four decades. And um, we're still coming through it. So actually, I kind of agree with you, Richard, much as I would love to disagree with you. Um, add in things like artificial intelligence. Now, the that. technology switch. Oh, right. Now, 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 I'm, I'm yep. so glad you talked about that. I am old enough to remember Alan Greenspan giving his Humphrey Hawkins testimony, as used to go in those days, talking about not irrational exuberance, but the productivity gains from the internet that they didn't fully understand. We now know that that was the boost of the 1990s. We do not yet fully compute the AI gains. We know they're coming and we know that they will be diverse and we know that they won't be evenly distributed across developed and developing economies. But that is going to be the the, the driver of this for the next five to 10 years. Yeah. So if you're a longer term investor, Richard. Oh, well, yeah, come on. I know your sort. I know your sort. <laughs> your sort. Arguing it your, always. Your Bitcoin sort. Oh, it's down 3%. Oh, oh now you've done it. $60,000 on Bitcoin. Buy or sell, Richard. You said it, not me. <laughs> oh. I'm a long-term investor, madam. A long-term <laughs> investor. At least seven and a half minutes. <laughs> Richard Quest. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Now, cherry blossoms in February, that's what parts of Japan are seeing, a full month earlier than they usually appear. Not in time for my visit, though. A beautiful sight and one that could become more common with climate change. This month is shaping up to be the hottest February on record. And Japan's not the only place feeling some heat. Ski slopes in Italy have no snow and flowers are also blooming early in Mexico City. Chad Myers joins us now. Beautiful things, Chad, but a sign Mm -hmm. of troubled times. What more can you tell us? I can tell you that the first rule of thumb in television is never follow Richard Quest. (laughs) (laughs) So we have some showers in Tokyo today, also some snow in the mountains. I hope you had a lovely trip. I'm sure that you did. Um, Yes, welcome home. It's nice to have you back. A little bit of a cooler air coming into China, but the story here, I think, is still the accumulation of snow here in parts of Japan. Could see some spots here, likely about 50 millimeters of rain and 50 centimeters of snow. As you do the multiplication, it's usually 10 to 1 or at least close, sometimes 7 to 1 if it's really heavy, wet snow. But there you see the 50 millimeters, and those are really in the higher elevations. And as soon as you get above about 1,000 meters, you get to that 50 centimeters of snow. We have some rain in Malaysia. Some of these areas here are going to pick up some very heavy rainfall. Even toward Jakarta there, you could pick up some areas in Indonesia, probably 150 millimeters to 200 millimeters of rainfall in some of these thunderstorms. And then we focus our attention down to the south that you were just talking about, the heat in parts of Australia. It is just 
not going away. Even for Melbourne, temperatures have been hot, but boy, they are getting hotter. We are going to go all the way to 30 on Tuesday after just a couple of cool days. You get a cool day, then a cool day, and all of a sudden you're back above normal again. And this has been the story, especially around Victoria as well. We talked about those fires a couple of days ago. The bushfires are still raging there. Joy. Wow. And those are some temperatures too. Chad, yeah. thank you so much for that update. I'm glad to be back. And don't tell Richard, you're my favorite. <laughs> Oh boy. I'll tell him right <laughs> That's now. That's going to get me into trouble. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. With a look at more of the international headlines this hour. The U.S. House of Representatives has passed an 11th hour measure on Thursday to avoid a government shutdown. Congress is barreling towards a pair of crucial funding deadlines, with the first one hitting at the end of Friday in Washington. That would mean no funding for key agencies like the Departments of Energy and Transportation. The bill now heads to the Senate. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin grilled by lawmakers on Capitol Hill Thursday. Austin took responsibility for how he handled his hospital stay earlier this year. The secretary entered hospital New Year's Day after suffering complications from cancer treatment. It will be days before Congress and the president learned of his condition. And Meta-CEO Mark Zuckerberg is making the rounds across Asia, stopping off in Seoul Thursday to meet with South Korea's president. The two talked about ways to cooperate over AI and South Korea's market for smart devices. Earlier this week, Zuckerberg made a pit stop in Tokyo, too, where he met with Japan's prime minister. And a reminder, once again, of our top story today, the Palestinian health ministry in Gaza says more than 100 people were killed as Israeli forces opened fire when desperately hungry civilians stormed aid trucks in Gaza City. CNN is unable to independently confirm those numbers or exactly what transpired, given that there are conflicting reports. The IDF says Israeli tanks fired warning shots to disperse the crowd after seeing people were being trampled. Speaking at the UN Security Council in the past few hours, the Palestinian UN ambassador says what happened was, quote, an outrageous massacre. Sean Carroll is the president and CEO of Anera, a humanitarian organization that provides aid to the Middle East, specifically refugees and vulnerable communities in Gaza, the West Bank, Lebanon and Jordan. And he joins us now from Washington. Sean, thank you so much for your time this evening. Good to have you on the show. I know you understand you. the realities and the challenges of getting aid, particularly food and other supplies into Gaza, and that includes the north. What do you make of the scenes we saw? Well, it shows just how desperate things are. And uh, what we need to focus on is the fact that just not nearly enough aid is getting into Gaza. And the amount of aid that has been getting in has been going down actually this month as opposed to the month before. Um, we have not gotten anywhere near enough aid into the north. People are literally uh, starving. Uh, the child of a friend of a staff member of ours died of starvation. I've seen reports of more children dying of starvation. And the staff member uh, had a relative killed in what happened this morning with the delivery of the aid trucks and the, and the shootings killed by fire. I'm so sorry for, for the person that, that lost their child. Was that in the north, Sean? It was, yeah, it was. <sighs> People talk are starving. Me, just talk to me about the operations that you have now? Because I know you have communal kitchens, six, I believe, running when you have them up and running in, in totality. How are you managing to 
to, to get supplies to them. I know you also buy as best you can from, from local businesses as well to provide the food that you provide. That's right. Early, early on in the war, we were mostly procuring locally with support from uh, donors, principally the World Central Kitchen. Uh, since then, the World Central Kitchen and others have been uh, helping to bring supplies in, mostly from uh, Egypt, and, and we're running those kitchens. But today, for instance, only two of our six takia, our community kitchens, were functioning because we ran low on, on supplies. Just not enough is getting in. And we're serving over 100, 150,000 meals a day, over 1 million meals a week, 19 million meals to date. But that's just a small portion of the meals that are needed. And uh, everyone in Gaza is surviving on one meal a day, and we're providing about 10% uh, of those single meals a day. Uh, and others are providing as well. But the totality of the aid that's that is allowed to get in, that is getting in, uh, is not enough. And so uh, that is the real issue. Yes, there are distribution challenges and they get worse as the desperation gets worse. Security is an issue as people get more desperate, but the principal issue is that not enough aid is getting in. And we know that more could get in. We know that we could get to the numbers that existed pre-war. The largest uh, single day through the Rafa crossing saw 300 trucks. The largest single day through the Karam Shalom crossing saw 187 trucks. Those are the numbers we need to see every day. If we had over 400, nearly 500 trucks a day, then we'd be getting close to back to what uh, is needed to sustain a population of over 2 million people. But when we're having 40, 50, 60, 90, 110, the average is about 90 trucks a day. So we're not even getting 20% of what's needed in. Yeah, and I think the logistics of that too, that's about even what is now coming in goes into the south and then it has to somehow be transported north. And I think what you've struck and, and hit upon here is the, the panic that we saw due to scarcity beyond anything else. You do run a kitchen, I know, in Jabalia in the north as well. Sean, just in light of what we saw earlier today with the, the food trucks being seized upon by, by people, as you point out, that are pretty desperate at this stage. Does it give you pause for thought in trying to get more aid in simply because you have to consider the safety of the people transporting it and providing it? Well, absolutely it does. And it needs to be coordinated and there needs to be security. Um, we did manage to get a couple of trucks of, of water and cooking oil and pasta and flour up the day before and didn't have that uh, problem. Um, we, uh, we seem to be able to arrange for security. Uh, the community knows Anira. They know that uh, we deliver and we deliver to who needs it most. Um, we can do more. If more supplies come in, we can work with the community to make sure it goes to where it, it needs to go and, and, and uh, I believe provide security. But it's, as you see, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's desperation. Um, and that makes people uh, uh, act desperately to try to get uh, some of this food that they so desperately need. It's just an enormous challenge. Sean, can I ask you about the security? Who's providing security? Can, can you give us any details on that? Yeah, I don't know. It seems a, a bit murky. I'm not sure what the convoy today, who was providing that uh, security. I know that we have uh, talked with the community, with, with community elders, with families about providing right. security. When we had some trucks go, um, we had them, uh, we had uh, men on top of the trucks, uh, several men, safety, security, and numbers. 
uh, not armed, uh, but ensuring that the uh, the aid would go all the way to the north. Um, but it, it's 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 not an easy thing. And uh, if there were more aid coming in, though, you lower the desperation and you lower the security risks. I uh, travel two, three, four times a year to Gaza uh, pre-October 7th. I never saw anybody uh, being shot or shooting at people uh, trying to get food. I saw UN data from back in January that was surveying children and it said that 16% of children under the age of two, obviously the equivalent of one in six children, are acutely malnourished or wasting in northern Gaza. And this was at the beginning of January. And again, I'm just hearing what you're saying about the scarcity still of trucks and the inability really to reach in any form of quantity the north. Can we presume at this stage that, that those numbers are significantly worse at this stage? Yeah, I think I think we can presume that, and we're seeing reports of of children dying of starvation. I, I think we'll see an increase in that. We see people dying of of complications of the the combination of not enough food, not enough clean water, uh, uh, immunity going down, disease going up. There needs to be more aid. There needs to be more crossings open. There are crossings in the in the north to the west of Gaza City, the Carney Crossing, which has been closed for more than a decade. I'm I'm hearing that that could open. It needs to open. The Erez Crossing in the north, which is the crossing uh, uh, that was used by humanitarian organizations before the war, um, needs to open. They're just ever the the crossings need to open. The inspections need to be speeded up and not so onerous. Uh, it needs to be made easier. Humanitarian workers who have worked in crises and response to war and 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 famine and and natural disaster around the world, who then work on this, are shocked at how hard it all is. And we know how to do this. And uh, getting more in by land is the way. We're seeing airdrops, and everything is needed, but airdrops is a last resort. And airdrop uh, suggests that there's no other way possible, and that can't be. Uh, the situation we have. We can't have a situation where the only way possible is to do airdrops, which are not as efficient. We can't bring in as much food, as much goods at the cost that we can by land. We just have to bring in more goods by land. The NGOs that are working on this know how to do it. Uh, the UN agencies working on this know how to do it. Uh, it needs to be made easier. There needs to be a level of trust that international organizations like Anira that have worked for over 50 years in the Palestinian territories and have the trust and respect of all actors, of all stakeholders, need to be given the trust to bring in more aid at a quicker pace and at larger scale. Yes, all the danger is more events like today take place. Um, Sean, thank you for your time and for all the work that you and your team are doing. And again, our hearts go out to your colleague whose child died. Um, thank you. Unfortunately, one of many, it seems. Thank you, sir. Sean Carroll there. Okay, coming up after the break. As Russian President Vladimir Putin warns the West about the risk of nuclear escalation, dwindling battlefield supplies are hampering Ukraine's defenses. The details on that next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to First Move. Russian President Vladimir Putin used his annual State of the Nation address on Thursday to deliver a stark warning to the West. He said Western nations risk nuclear war if they send troops into Ukraine. It's a direct response, no doubt, to surprise comments by French President Emmanuel Macron earlier this week, who said Western troop deployment to Ukraine should not be ruled out. Meanwhile, on the battlefield, President Zelensky's top general is admitting certain, quote, miscalculations in the defense of areas around Avdivka and Zaporizhia. He said all measures, quote, have been taken to remedy the situation. It comes as Russian troops make slow but steady gains. As Nick Payton Walsh reports, ammunition shortages are making it harder to hold back Moscow's army. Not even tree cover means safety. They're firing to defend the tiny gains of Ukraine's counter-offensive. But now they are outgunned by Russian troops trying to surge forwards. You can hear how many shells they fire back. No US aid means Ukrainians risk losing right here, right now. I feel like they're fighting really with one hand behind their back. Such a shortage of shells here. They get to do that, if they're lucky, about 10 times a day. Back in the summer counter-offensive, they would fire 80 a day. Down in the bunker, it is strange to hear men who live underground to avoid death be so familiar with Republican procedural dysfunctionality. Do you have a message for people in Washington? Their drone footage shows the remains of last night's failed Russian assault. This is what was a key prize in the counter-offensive, the tiny village of Robotina. Still Ukraine's, but now another front line where Russia is hitting back hard. This thermal night imagery shows their latest bleak tactic. It's a quad bike carrying three Russians, charging at the front lines to simply see how far it can get. But while Russia seems to squander infinite resources, Ukraine must be more ingenious and crowdfund. This, a 3D printer to make tiny components for about 10 attack drones a day. Without more artillery, they say only these drones hold Russia back here. It is a bleak and fierce fight which has mauled the nearby town of Orakhiv. 
Russian airstrikes have left it looking like defeat rather than the symbol of Ukrainian tenacity it is. Each time we come back here it's just worse and worse and you just don't even really imagine what people can do to survive here or what there's really worth left fighting over. And on the road out, these. A stark warning, Ukraine is preparing for bad news. Six months ago, they were trying to surge forwards with new Western armour here. Now, they prepare to lose. Only one thing changed, and it was in Washington, not in their hearts. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Orakiv, Ukraine. Welcome back to First Move and to a much-loved dish around the world, butter chicken. It's a creamy blend of tandoori chicken, tomato, butter and spices. But for two restaurant chains in India, there's a bitter-tasting new ingredient, litigation. That's because the restaurants are fighting over who created the dish first, as Vedika Sood reports. What is the world of India's most famous dish? Butter chicken. That meat is tender. Mm. Now that's the dish you've been waiting for. Bloody hell. A reaction fit for one of India's most famous gastronomic exports. Succulent chicken cooked in a velvety tomato gravy with cream, spices and of course, chunks of butter. It's a simple recipe that is even featured as a challenge on MasterChef Australia. Wow. And it's now being fought over by two families in a $240,000 court battle. Butter chicken is now a serious bone of contention between two Indian restaurant chains locked in legal battle over who invented it. Last month, Moti Mahal Deluxe, run by the descendants of Kundan Lal Gujral, filed a complaint spanning over 2,700 pages against competitors Darya Ganj. They say it was their grandfather Gujral who first invented the dish in the 1920s in Peshawar, in what is now modern Pakistan. After partition, Gujral moved to India and went on to set up the first Muthi Mehel with two other partners in 1947, the same year India gained its independence. Over the years, its popularity soared, hosting famous faces, former US President John F. Kennedy, alongside First Lady Jackie Kennedy and Indian Prime Ministers Jawaharlal Nehru and Indira Gandhi. It's a legacy which is, uh, which is very dear to my family because we inherited that kind of a legacy with my grandfather. We don't want anybody taking away our legacy just by just, you know, uh, putting them or uh, associating them with us. Darya Ganj claims the dish was invented when the restaurant was set up with Gujral's partner, Kundan Lal Jaggi, one of their late relatives. Co-founder and CEO Amit Bagai even proclaimed it when he appeared on the Indian version of American investment reality show, Shark Tank, last year. We actually don't understand the validity of this whole case here. Because if something is a trademark registered by us, it's a legacy which is also shared by us. How can anyone stop us to use that? But do butter chicken fans care? I'm here for the butter chicken. I would say I know founders, like who's the founder of a company is very popular nowadays. But I mean, going back to like Gordon Ramsay, it's the flavor. It's not the pretension, it's not the restaurant, it's, it is. It's like the flavor of the food and is the butter chicken buttery. Because every food has a story and um, uh, you know, every preparation uh, takes its own time and um, it has own challenges and on. And definitely that taste is carried on through generations. 
A court ruling is likely to take months. But regardless of the outcome, this dish is guaranteed to remain a firm favorite. Vedika Sood, CNN, New Delhi. Yes, consumers don't care who's first. And finally, on first move, a baseball legend in the making is off the market, the marriage market. That is MLB superstar Shohei Otani revealing on Instagram that he just got married. Otani shared very little information about his new wife, and we don't have her name yet, but he did post that she's also Japanese and that she is, quote, very special to me. We wish them both very well and congratulations. And that just wraps up the show. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.